Hello and welcome to Stars, Cells, and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Hugh Ross. I'm here today with Jeff Zwerink, and today uh, I'll be your guide as we explore the topic. Uh, Jeff's going to talk about artificial intelligence, new discovery about artificial intelligence, I'm going to be talking about undersea mountains and mountain ranges. But before we get into those two discussions, I want to encourage you to subscribe uh, to our channel, our Reasons to Believe YouTube channel, and click on the bell icon uh, so that you can be a subscriber. It's free, and you can be informed of our new videos. We release new Star Cells and God episodes every Thursday, and our website, reasons.org, is full of excellent resources on a variety of topics. Learn more at reasons.org or by following us on social media at rtv underscore official. Well, let's begin with you, Jeff. Uh, you've been writing a lot about artificial intelligence. And uh, what's this new discovery all about? Well, it's, it's a discovery that's talking about just how we go about evaluating artificial intelligences. And, uh, you know, is it an IQ test? Uh, <laughs> no, it isn't an IQ test. Yet. Well, because, uh, you know, as of right now, it's artificial intelligence. It's uh, th the, there's, there's this tendency to conflate human and machine there. And so that, that's one of the challenges that arises is that we know, I think one of, the, one of the goals of artificial intelligence is to create a sentience or an intelligence that rivals or at least matches human intelligence, uh, if not exceeds. And so that does, but it raises this question of how do you evaluate that? Uh, you know, and, and I remember uh, back in the 90s where you've got these uh, new machines coming along playing chess, and I know you played a lot of chess, and I kind of dabbled in it uh, at, at times throughout my history. And uh, you know, one of the things you had was, you know, could you build a chess or a program or a machine that could outplay the best human chess players? And I remember through the '80s and into the most of the '90s, you know, they'd have these competitions, and the humans kind of pretty much walked away victorious all the time. Uh, you, know, you get into the mid '90s, and there was a time where you know the humans won, but uh, you know, every now and again, the, the the machine would pull off a victory. And then <clears throat> I think it was finally in 1997. Uh, the deep blue beat Gary Kasparov and uh, you know finally uh, you know since that point in time I don't think we the humans have ever beat the machines at least not at, at the high end like that and so right. well because the machines had enormous memory I mean they could think 40 50 moves ahead whereas even the best chess players find it challenging to think 15 moves ahead exactly and you know that there, there's this dynamic that goes on of we that what what's the actual measure of is the machine better than humans? And so you could say, all right, we'll play the game. That's the measure. But there's kind of two things at play there. One is, can the machine do X? And is the machine thinking like X or thinking like us? And so there's often these benchmarks out. Uh, you know, one of them was, well, if we could build a machine that could best humans, then we've got artificial intelligence. And yet at the end of the day, Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov, and then the next day the machine was dismantled. 
So obviously we didn't think that we built an intelligence. We built a machine that could outplay the best human chess player. Um, and I mean, you know, now we don't even, the best human chess players can't even begin to compete with the best chess playing machines just because they play so much better. Uh, in fact, we often, you know, a lot of the best human chess players will learn or look at what the machines do to learn how to play better. And right. so, so we've got these machines that can vastly exceed human performance, but yet we don't look at them as intelligent or sentient. Well, having played uh, tournament chess before I became a Christian, uh, back in my teenage years, what I'd observed is uh, one of the ways you win at chess is by deceiving your opponent. Mm -hmm. uh, the computer doesn't have to worry about that. Its memory is so much superior to human memory and its capacity to learn from its mistakes are so much better than what we humans can do. It doesn't have to bother emulating you know, human emotions, deception. You know, none of that's required because it's just so much superior uh, in, in memory capacity, storage, mm -hmm. and uh, learning capability. Well, well, it's that's an interesting point that I'll come back to in a second is that often there are shortcuts to doing what, what you want to do. And that's one of the problems that you run into when you're trying to build benchmarks for uh, human-like behavior. And, and, and what we find in our AIs is that we've got AIs that can beat the best human chess players. In fact, there's an AI out there that just taught the rules of chess, learned to play chess better than the best human chess players. Um, same AI learned how to play Go and Shogi, two kind of similar memory type games, if you will, or, or skill type games. Uh, again, just from the rules, played them, played against itself and learned how to be best the best human players. Well, even back in the 80s when they were working on trying to get a good chess playing computer, they were able to get one that could play checkers mm -hmm. and either win or draw against any human player. Right. So it basically showed you, hey, if you can do that with checkers, it's just a matter of time before we can do with any game. And games like Go and chess and checkers, computers universally uh, wipe out uh, human competitors. Right. No, you're, you're correct. And what I found fascinating about these, these latest incarnations is that, you know, with Deep Blue, there were chess was encoded into the algorithm. There's opening strategies and closing strategies. And so human knowledge was basically built into how the AI then learned from that and, and, and played better. Whereas in these situations, the AI was just given the rules and it basically developed that quote unquote knowledge. And that's what, uh, you know, I mean, you know, just on a lot of these language, different tasks that we'll put before an AI, whether it be playing chess or even playing poker or uh, doing language processing, writing songs. In fact, I, I just oddly enough listened to a song not too long ago uh, that was supposed to be a worship song uh, written by an AI. AI wrote it, performed it, and recorded it. Uh, you know, so it wasn't like you know, th th this is the sort of stuff that's like, okay, well, that's the sort of purview of humans to have this creative capacity. And so there, there's going to be a lot of these kind of weird areas where these AIs can do what we do better than what we do. And so what does that mean? And uh, if you got the, a graphic to show up, uh, you know, there's you got topics of natural language processing, handwriting recognition, speak recognition, image recognition, reading comprehension, language understanding. I mean, these are things that seem to be the purview of hu human behavior only. 
And what's interesting, what this graph shows is the timeline of as these benchmarks came out, how quickly did AIs go from starting to work on the benchmarks to how quickly did they exceed human performance? And that's what that line is there at zero is right, human right. performance. Uh, you know, you talk with uh, the handwriting recognition, you know, back in the 1990s, it was well below human uh, recognition. And then, uh, you know, about, uh, what, 15, 20 years later there, it finally achieves human capability. But you go look at uh, language understanding in this glue, and basically it takes a year or two, and the AIs achieve human-level performance on there. And so it really makes it look like we're getting close to building sentience in there. And the challenge is, is or, or one of the, the challenges that arises, is that you've got this uh, say, thing we say, all right, well, this is what humans do, and this is how we do it. How do we get, you know, can we write an AI that will do this? And they get very good at it, except they do kind of lousy out in the real world. So, for example, uh, on, in terms of sign recognition, you can build an AI that will recognize signs, and they'll get them right the vast majority of the time. But you come up on a stop sign that has a couple of strategically placed stickers, and it will think it's a speed limit sign. Now, no human makes that mistake. So it, it, the behavior looks like it's very close to human behavior, but it might be doing something entirely different. Um, well, I'm looking forward to an AI machine that's able to look at street signs and take all the graffiti out and show me what it was that it originally. <laughs> and I think that's doable. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. Because, yeah. Well, especially since we know what most of the signs were supposed to look like in the first place. Exactly. That's pretty straightforward. Yeah. But what we find is that, you know, one of the things that's true of the AIs is, uh, you know, there, there is some, I, I, I hesitate to use the term genuine learning because, again, that's something that humans do in a particular way. But there is this capacity that AIs have. It's not like they've just got, there's this programming and everything was within the programming, that AIs can actually see environments, adjust the way they do things, and do things better on subsequent times. And so there is this, I, I think, a, I think it's a genuine type of learning. It's just, I think it's different than what well, I think humans a good do. example of that is Google Translate. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember communicating with uh, someone in Ukraine, and, uh, you know, the first messages back and forth, uh, nothing was happening. Right. But the program figured out that I was not responding and he wasn't responding. So okay. it knew that it had made an error. Okay, right. So the fact that it wasn't a response is that's a mistake. Next time, I'm going to translate that differently, uh -huh. and it still got it wrong, uh, but there was a bit of a response, and it said, oh, I'm getting closer to the right, right answer. Within a year, I mean, the translation was almost perfect mm -hmm. because the machine basically learned from all of its mistakes, saying, I'm not going to do that again, and that's something a programmer can put into the uh, software, so you can actually build it into the software. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it is self-learning, but guess who trained it to learn? Well, and, and in that, there's how what the data you train and everything makes a big difference on that. Because you know, often, one of the things that is true is that at least the way AIs are currently built is there's this big neural network, and so there's this, uh, you know, out or set of inputs that come in. There's a set of outputs that come out, and then there's this, 
you know, effectively big matrix of nodes that uh, their strengths and, uh, you know, the, the, the weights given between the connections between each nodes, kind of similar to the neurons that we have in our brain, um, where as, as the data comes in and the AI says, okay, this, it gets trained and says, no, that's right. It goes and it rewires the strengths of the connections between the nodes. And eventually you get very, very good, whatever this input gives the correct kind of output. Except that one, you know, one of the things we have to remember is that very often, so it's looking for this, this correlated with this. And just because this correlated with this doesn't mean the AI thought, oh, Hugh is looking to say this word. This person needed to know this, and so it gives that word. It just says, okay, this, this, this input correlates with that output. Right. And so, uh, you know, one of the, uh, I love this example because it just illustrates it very clearly, is that there was an AI that was trained to uh, distinguish between huskies and wolves. And it was fed images of huskies and wolves, and then it was shown 10 images of huskies and wolves, and it got eight of them correct. And this was, you know, look at that, and you say, okay, we're 80% of the way there. And then what the researchers did is go ahead and said, all right, what is it that was going on in the AI that did this? Well, it turned out that of the huskies, none of those images had snow in them. Of the wolves, 80, all of the images had snow on them. You know the two that it missed? <laughs> it was the husky that had snow and the wolf that didn't have snow. Right. So, it, again, that's just a reminder to me or, a, or a, a, a cautionary tale that we need to be careful that just because the AI gets really good or really close, it doesn't mean it actually understands what's going on or that it's doing what we do. Right. And, and I think what I love about this article is that it's highlighting that we need to be careful that the benchmarks don't become the standard by which we say, oh, this is human or not. Because effectively what we end up doing is saying, all right, here's the benchmark. So people go in and say, all right, how can we build something that achieves this benchmark? But very often, just like the wolves and the huskies, the AI is going to find the shortcuts to make it happen. In fact, you know, there was a, an example of a, a multiple choice test where the AI could do twice as good as random guessing, and all it was doing it was looking at the number of or was looking at the structure of the sentences. It had no idea what the actual words in there. It just counted number of adverbs, verbs, nouns, and pronouns, and it was able to guess the answer. Like I said, quite a bit better than random guessing. So. You, you would assume, oh, it's actually understanding, it's learning how to it's know, not, right. but it's just not doing anything of the sort. And so I think that's what we need to be careful of when we see AIs developing, because I think we want to see, or at least a large fraction of our society, wants to see a sentient AI. But what I, yeah, and this is where I think the scientific part comes in, is one of the things that we do in science is we say, all right, we think this is going on. How rigorously can we test and make sure that's actually what's going on? And if and, we do that, I think we're going to be in good shape. And a good application is self-driving cars. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you really count on the AI system recognizing a real stop sign from a stop sign that shows up in a billboard ad? Or, Fair point. Or, you know, someone walking in front of the stop sign. Mm -hmm. I mean, we humans realize, okay, I see that stop sign, but if the AI is only looking at it for a certain period of time, it could miss it. Right, and and th these are this. It, it seems like there's something very deep and uh, difficult and complex about how we think that it's not just an assemblage of neurons. That there's there's something more that we're doing there. And I think the AIs will get very good at mimicking human behavior. I have no doubt. You know, it may, it may be that everything humans do, AIs can do and do better. 
uh, that it, it will, we, will be, we will make AIs so good at mimicking our behavior. The question in my mind is, is are, they truly do, are they truly sentient in the way we are? Because there's, there's kind of this intuitive sense we have about things, whether it's right or wrong. There's this intuitive sense we have that, oh, that stop sign is very different than this stop sign. And some of it's algorithm and some of it is our awareness of who we are in this world. And, and that's, that latter part is going to be really hard to replicate, although there are some interesting examples where it seems like computers are doing that. And I'm going to talk about that on a later Star Cells and God. But. That sounds good. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm really excited about this, Jeff. And we are living at a time when computers, like, you know, every couple of years, we seem to get a vast improvement mm -hmm. in computer technology. The software is getting a lot better. Right. But everything I've heard you say is about these AI machines are getting intellectually more sophisticated. But, you know, of course, I think you're going to talk about this in another episode. Are they going to be able to relate to us like another human being? And there's more to us than just our intellect. There is. And, and even it wouldn't surprise me. In fact, I think we're going to develop AIs that are more capable of recognizing and responding to emotions than humans are. Um, you know, I mean, just you and I are, you tend to be a little bit less on the emotional awareness sense or part of things, but there are people that are very emotional aware. And, uh, you know, I mean, I may be less effective just because I'm tired or hungry, whereas AIs don't get tired and hungry. So I, I think even in those areas, there's a way where you can use AIs and often develop for good things. Cause I know they're talking about using AIs to be able to recognize emotional cues from autistic children. And you know, so there's very good uses for this. There's already <laughs> software that is used to help people who have emotional, you know, difficulties right. emotionally communicating. Mm -hmm. There's programs that basically help them, hey, these are what you need to look for. Right. So we're already at that point. Right. Uh, but to say that your computer really is emotional like you are, <laughs> <laughs> and, and how do we keep ourselves from falling into the trap of, oh, it looks so much like us, therefore it's got to be us? How do we maintain that objectivity to step back and say, is this really what's going on? And how do we test that well? Or, I think that's going to be hard to do because that's going to require a lot of resources. Because the one thing that is still true today is that an AI may do very well at saying, okay, translating language, corresponding, talking with you, but figuring out what the AI is actually doing and why it made the decisions it makes is really difficult right now. And it is, but I, I just remember reading 1984 a few months back, because I read it decades ago, right. reading again and saying, hey, AI could actually get us into a 1984 scenario mm -hmm. where there's this big AI machine <laughs> that's watching everything you're doing all the time and can even do that with 8 billion people simultaneously. Yep. And what if that falls into the hands of a dictator? So, Well, and a bigger problem than I have than that is, you know, if rather than it falling into the hands of the dictator, what if the AI gets to, you know, just is as if we've taught it well enough and it's learned that now it no, we have, it, we, there's no, no human that's controlling it. So now the AI is deciding on by whatever means, and we don't even know what's going on in there. there there's a lot of kind of scary well, doomsday type scenarios. In China, where you've got these machines that are recording how many steps people do per yeah. day and, you know, uh, what they're watching on the TV and different things. So people's lives already are being controlled, at least to some degree, by AI. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's going to become a bigger problem. And it's interesting because it seems like at least 
my, when I was growing up, at least, it seemed like you were pretty careful about who had your private information. We seem to be very free with giving that away uh, these days uh, for the sake of convenience. And I think that's something, especially in the church, we ought to be careful of watching. I think society as a whole, we ought to be careful about doing anyway. Well, I remember talking to a computer programmer who says, I actually think it's good because AI is going to develop to a point where it's going to basically say, Jeff, this is how you need to control your health. And, uh, you know, stop what you're doing, get your exercise done. Uh, but now you've lost a lot of your freedom. Exactly. But his whole point is, hey, we lose our freedom, but we're going to have healthier lives because the AI machines are going to force us to exercise, eat better, you know, sleep, etc. But is that something we really want? <laughs> well, I know, I know any time in human history we've experimented with that, it hasn't worked out well. <laughs> right. I, don't, I don't think the AI is going to do much better. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, Jeff. Uh, I'm going to try to be brief about uh, my discovery, and uh, this is about undersea mountains and mountain ranges. And uh, let me uh, pull up this image. This is basically showing you, you know, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And so you got this huge mountain range uh, running through the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And as you look at this image, you can see it's not just a mountain range, but we see undersea peaks everywhere within the Atlantic. And of course, this is true of all the oceans. But as you look up towards the Arctic, notice there's a lot more undersea mountains and mountain ranges there than you get, say, in the tropical uh, part uh, of the ocean. And this paper is basically making the point, hey, uh, this is having an impact uh, on the livability of our planet. Uh, it has an impact on climate change, uh, what's happening with global warming. Uh, because, you know, there's always been a lot of discussion about ocean current overturnings. Mm -hmm. We see this in all the oceans. And this paper is basically alerting us to something that these undersea mountains and mountain ranges are playing a way bigger role than we previously thought. Because the idea was, okay, you get these massive ocean currents. Uh, so, for example, uh, what you see is you get warm tropical water that can move north through the Atlantic. But as it gets up towards the Arctic, you get all these mountains, undersea mountain ranges. It stops at, but this plays a huge role in warming up northern Europe, for example. Mm -hmm. It's not just the Gulf Stream. It's the structuring here because you've got this warm surface water. It overturns. It goes down deep. It becomes cold. It pulls carbon dioxide down into the deep ocean. Right. And uh, so the thinking was, well, uh, perhaps the climate change we're dealing with is largely mitigated by the fact that we got these powerful ocean currents mm -hmm. that will take atmospheric carbon dioxide and dissolve it down into the deep ocean. But this paper is saying not so fast because with these underground or undersea mountain ranges and ridges and mountain uh, peaks, it basically stops that flow of deep ocean water they bump into these undersea mountain ranges and it pushes it back up. So they said, we've probably been overestimating the degree to which the oceans are able to uh, store for a long time atmospheric carbon dioxide. This gets restored, but it says, we just need to measure this better. 
And so, so wait, because I know that if, I mean, if you just, we've measured the ocean currents, and like I said, you know, you've got ocean currents that go up towards the north, that the the air, the water gets colder, sinks down deep, goes down. I mean, there, there's this circulation, it goes over into the Indian and Pacific Ocean, and, and you know, so it, it goes all around. So how, I mean, we know what that current is. How do the mounts, are the mounts driving where that current goes, or is it affecting the currents that we know are there? Well, You've got this, say, cold, deep underwater current, and it's flowing uh, southward, but it bumps into undersea mountain range, mm -hmm. which forces it back up. Right. So, um, I mean, I saw that, you know, Kathy and I saw that when we went whale watching in Quebec. There was a place in the St. Lawrence uh, River where you had this undersea uh, cliff, and it caused the water to bump into that cliff and come up. Mm -hmm. Well, what it did is it brought up a huge quantity of plankton, right. and the whales knew that. So that part, that's the one part of the world where you got the densest concentration of whales, because right. the whales are taking advantage of this underwater uh, cliff mm -hmm. that pushes all this uh, food up to the surface. This is similar right. in that uh, you've got nutrients, dissolved carbon dioxide, dissolved oxygen, uh, cold water, uh, that bumps into these undersea mountains and mountain ranges mm -hmm. and basically uh, causes the flow to go back up. Um, and so what this paper is talking about is the initial effort to actually map this in greater detail. Okay. So they're taking ships out into the ocean uh, where they know these undersea uh, mountains and mountain ranges are, and uh, they're dropping into the ocean uh, a non-toxic... Uh, chemical, okay, and uh, they make sure it's short has a short half life, mm -hmm. so it's not going to cause any long term effects, right? So it decays quickly, but it's something they can detect from the surface. So it's basically something you put it in there, and it allows you to track what the it's actual currents are doing. tracking the right. current, okay? And they can actually have it go down almost two thousand meters, right? So uh, they they drop this uh, chemical in there and they can trace it as it drops, as it sinks down. They, they can see the sinking effect. Mm -hmm. They can see it bumping into a mountain right. and rising back up. Mm -hmm. So for the first time, there's actually uh, dedicated research trying to map the effect of undersea mountain ranges and the seamounts and seeing what it does to the ocean circulation patterns. Mm -hmm. And they're now realizing that the South Ocean plays a big role because if you go down to, I should have a slide for this, but I don't. But if you look around Antarctica, you've got this huge open ocean mm -hmm. all around Antarctica, and you've got these powerful winds. Right. I mean, they refer to it as the Roaring Forties. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, your experiment down in Antarctica, you're going to have to pass through that. Right. And as you're going from, say, South America down to Antarctica, you get these nonstop powerful winds, mm -hmm. and it impacts the ocean current. Right. And basically what it's doing is uh, uh, causing deep ocean water to come up to the surface. And this actually impacts the ocean currents in the Pacific, the Indian, mm -hmm. and the Atlantic Ocean, and even up into the Arctic. So it's going on the South Ocean long term, even as an impact on what happens to the Arctic. Well, it's almost because you've got that circumpolar ocean current. That's what connects all the other oceans, allows right, that current right. to, instead of just you got an Atlantic and a Pacific and an Indian, it it actually allows them to all mix together. Right. So. Well, the initial result here is basically making the point, hey, uh, that deep, cold water 
with all the dissolved carbon dioxide, it's not as stable as we think. Okay. Uh, the circulation is more rapid and stronger, mainly because of these undersea uh, mountains and mm -hmm. mountain ranges. But the paper ends by saying, you know, uh, we can actually build way better climate models. Because, I mean, mm -hmm. that's kind of the goal is, hey, can we actually develop the predictions of future climate to the same degree and reliability that we do weather forecasting? I mean, 100 years ago, we had well, I'm trouble. assuming you're talking about the general forecast, not tomorrow. Well, no, I get Well, I mean. Weather forecasting is not known for being particularly accurate. So. Yeah, but it's better than our climate models okay. in the sense that, you know, 150 years ago, uh, the weatherman would say this is what it's going to be like tomorrow. Maybe he was right. Maybe he was wrong. Yeah. Because we've got uh, weather gathering data all mm -hmm. over the world, including the oceans, as well as the continental land masses, you can go online and get a reasonably accurate weather forecast for the next 10 days right. almost anywhere in the world. That is true, yes. And uh, if you're talking about tomorrow, you can basically count on it. Mm -hmm. You know, nine days out, well, that might change a little bit. But we're way better off now than we were a century ago. Mm -hmm. And the goal is to well, get largely because we've just got more data that we allows got more us to data. Do it. So you're you're talking about something that allows us to get more data of exactly. ocean circulation. What they're realizing is okay, we're trying to build really good climate uh, models predicting future climate all over the world, and we've been relying on ocean surface measurements and data we get on the continental land masses. They're saying really to get to the objective of having a reliable climate model that would be able to predict this is what the climate's going to be like in 10 years, mm -hmm. 50 years, 100 years, uh, where we don't have plus or minus 50% uncertainty, but we got more like plus or minus 5% uncertainty, which is what you need to make wise decisions. How are we going to respond uh, to climate change? Right. If your uncertainty is plus or minus 50%, you might do things that have unintended consequences. Might make it worse. Yeah. Might make it worse. Uh, but if you know your data is good to say plus or minus 3 or 5%, uh, you're less likely mm -hmm. to do things that are going to be catastrophic right. and more likely to do things that are really going to help and be economically beneficial. Mm -hmm. This paper is saying for that to be possible, we need to be taking data in the deep ocean all right. over the world and especially getting good data uh, near these uh, sea mounts. And also there's an economic benefit is that if we can actually measure the circulation of valuable nutrients in the ocean, mm -hmm. now this could help us uh, mine uh, these nutrients or maybe be able to increase the fish stocks. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're very dependent on getting a lot of our food from the oceans right. and even the deep ocean. And uh, by getting this kind of data, we might be able to increase the food supply, mm -hmm. the sustainable food supply, and also uh, be wiser about, okay, hey, we're overfishing here, and this is where we need to back off so that we can improve the food stocks in the future. And so there's some real economic benefits uh, that can be right. discerned, not just getting better climate models from doing these kinds of studies, well, and as they and, point out, yeah, go ahead. Well, and then that discussion there about, you know, it's like there's there's the as aspect of how the climate, you know, what is it getting hotter or colder, that that seems to dominate the discussion. But I also know, you know, I mean, and part of the reason why it dominates is because if the climate gets hotter, that's going to have impact on people. Um, you know, one of the things that I do find interesting is 
uh, you know, and some of the scientists I've talked to, that as the carbon dioxide goes up, uh, you know, yeah, it makes the climate warmer, but it also allows more food to be grown. And so, you know, we've got the amount of food impacts the number of people who are starving. And so, you know, you're talking about that here in the oceans, not just, you know, yeah, you need to know what's going on with the climate, but also has these economic uh, impacts that in some sense, we need to be make sure that we're taking a, a big picture approach and not just focusing on one aspect so that we get a, a solution that actually takes care of both the planet and the people on the planet. True. And in terms of food production, carbon dioxide is a factor, but so is temperature. Right. Some plants don't do well when it gets warmer. Mm -hmm. And their ability to use the carbon dioxide begins to decrease. But this also helps us plan. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe we need to be growing corn in Canada rather than in the U.S. Uh, or maybe we need to focus on uh, different crops. Or if we want to grow wheat in the U.S., maybe we need to take steps to lower the temperature so we can actually take advantage of the carbon dioxide. This is complicated. Well, so, I mean, I know we don't... I'm trying to figure out how to ask, ask this question in, in a way to engage it scientifically is that it seems like there's a scientific question to that. But you said, well, maybe we should grow corn in Canada instead of the U.S. That's fine, except for all the growers in the U.S. I mean, yeah, there, are, there are much bigger geopolitical concerns that impact that as well. So it seems like, you know, I mean, there's the science and then there's the how do you actually implement the policy that is a big problem. Yeah, too. I'm just making the point, Jeff, that uh, there's an optimal level of carbon dioxide mm -hmm. for crop productivity, but there's also an optimal temperature. Right. And with corn, you get the best productivity at about 83 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm hmm um, and so if the temperature is in the summertime is getting up into the 90s and 100s, uh, your corn productivity drops. Right. But one way to deal with that is if, let's grow corn in a cooler climate. Uh, and if you're dealing with wheat mm -hmm. and uh, rice and oats, then the optimal temperature is around 66 degrees. Right. And so and if you're trying to grow that stuff in the summer, even in Canada, large parts of Canada, it's warmer than that. Right. And so... But it means, hey, maybe we can be growing this food uh, up towards the Northwest Territories in Canada. So, uh, and there's just not a ton of people up in the Northwest Territories. <laughs> well, if they're able to grow a lot of food up there, that could all change. Fair point. Fair point. I mean, that's already happening in right. parts of Russia, for example. They're moving. But the whole point is, you need good data mm -hmm. to be able to figure out, okay, what's the best crop for me to grow on the acreage I have where I am. Uh, should I be focusing on corn? Should I be focusing on wheat or rice? And uh, so, you know, getting better data mm -hmm. and being able to plan, okay, what's it going to be like three years from now? Because if I'm a farmer trying to make uh, good money and getting good crops, I not only need to know what the climate's going to be next year, mm -hmm. I need to know what it's going to be three and five years from now. Right. Because if I'm going to need to buy new farmland. Yeah, there's investment. There's you, an, investments you have to make to make it, pro or to make it exactly. worthwhile for your, for your effort to do so, so that's what this paper is all about. Yeah, and, no, it uh, seems like it's a good idea to get more data. That's pretty helpful and, and well, just a, a, almost a no-brainer to do. So. It is a no-brainer because this is relatively cheap to do. Mm -hmm. Just send out research ships and uh, the other chemicals they use are cheap. And uh, they're not going to be a problem. People worry about is there a toxicity issue? Mm -hmm. Well, if it's got a short half-life, uh, even if it is mildly toxic, it's probably not going to do a lot of damage. But the paper is basically saying everything we know about these chemicals, they're non-toxic to life. Right. So they're saying, I don't think we need to worry. 
but if there's a long-term toxicity that we haven't been able to measure, don't worry about it. Uh, these chemicals have short enough half-life that that's not going to be an issue. All right. So this is safe and cheap. Very good. Okay. Thank you once again for watching. And remember, the more we learn about science, the more reasons we have to believe in Jesus Christ as Creator, Lord, and Savior. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.